Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. I am Copy Construct, and this is GoTime. It's GoTime, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. All right, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of GoTime. Today's episode is number 57. Uh, we've been gone for a couple of weeks. Uh, our, our production studio was actually in Houston, but good news is is that uh, Adam and family are all doing well. So we are back on today on the show. Myself, Eric St. Martin, uh, Brian Kettleson's here. I think he's still here. Brian. Muted. All right. Maybe muted, but still <laughs> I'm here. The dog was barking. Uh. And Carlicia. Hi, I'm here, definitely. <laughs> and our special guest today is Cindy, uh, also uh, known on Twitter as Copy Construct. And I'm sure many of you have probably read a lot of her um, operations uh, and DevOps posts that have been uh, gaining some popularity recently. Uh, welcome to the show, Cindy. Thanks for having me. See, she's not on mute, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Eric. <laughs> So um, for anybody who's not familiar with uh, you or in some of your work, do you want to give just maybe just like a, a little rundown of uh, your history? And Sure. Um, to be very honest, I um, I mean, it, it's kind of a little strange for me because I have been programming for more, over half my life. Um, I started back in 2003, 2004 when I was, um, I was 13 years old. and um, it started with me programming for school because um, we had computer science classes. And um, I remember being really, really bad at it. I wasn't very good. And um, what that made me do was spend almost an entire summer doing nothing but programming just to get better at this thing, which I didn't consider myself to be very good at. And what happened was um, I spent six to eight weeks doing quite literally nothing else but programming. And um, at the end of it, it wasn't really a struggle anymore. It just became extremely enjoyable and just became really fun. And, um, you know, 13, 14 years later, still remains the same. So um, that really is how I got my start. So here's a question, because like a lot of us talk about this type of stuff, too. Like, so you said when you got started, you know, you didn't think you were very good at it. You know, how do you how do you feel about your work now? Because I know like personally, it's like I went through this cliff, like, you know, through teenage years trying to learn programming, I thought I was terrible. Then I went through like this inflated ego phase, like in my late teens and early 20s, where I thought I was awesome at it. And now way later in my career, I think I'm terrible at it again. Like, I don't know enough. There's too much to know. So I don't I don't ever think I was particularly I still don't think I'm particularly good at it. Um, I just like to think that I'm improving. I've definitely improved a lot over the years. Um, you know, when I back when I started, I wasn't really um I wasn't really building software. It was just programming, which is um, you know, I think there's a huge chasm between just writing some code and actually doing it professionally for a living. Because um software engineering as such is just so, so, so much more than just writing code, right? And you know, I don't particularly think I'm the best programmer right now. And I also don't think I'm necessarily the best at software engineering. But what I strive to do is try to get better because, you know, just like you said, I think there's just so many people we can learn from and just so much that pretty much every anyone still needs to learn about just so many various things. I don't really think it's ever going to be possible for one person to sort of completely understand everything that there has to do with software development. There's just way, way, way too much. But what we can do, or at least what I strive to do, is to continually get better at it, right? Because, you know, if I'm doing that, I think I'm doing, I'm doing okay. And at the end of the day, that's kind of what matters to me. 
I think that's why so many people call it a practice instead of uh, something mm-hmm. else. You, you, you have to continually practice and improve. Pretty much. Um, but I also think it's possible for some, and some people actually do this, where they go very, very deep into um, one particular field, right? It can either be security or it could be web development or it could be systems programming or very, very low level programming or even, for instance, JavaScript programming or very high level. So, um, you know, that's very possible. And I see a lot of people doing that. And um, for me, at least for now, I'm, um, I would consider myself a very generalist software engineer. That's kind of also what I really want to be doing for the next few years, just sort of have a baseline understanding of a lot of different things and, um, you know, keep doing that. Yeah, I think having a, a broad view of the landscape is kind of fun and it allows you to not get bored. You can kind of yeah. switch over to stuff. and But I mean, it, it gets you at that, like you wish you were like really, really super knowledgeable, like more knowledgeable in a particular area, especially like when it starts uh, gaining popularity or people are starting to use it for really interesting things. And you're like, wow, I wish I spent more time like going deeper down that path. But I think the flip side of that is, had you done that, there's other paths that, you know, you'd be like, wow, like now I know nothing about those things and I wish I had spent time on them. I think people beat themselves up a little bit too. Like, you know, you become the the world's best uh, brain surgeon, but then you're upset that you're not the world's greatest heart surgeon, you know, <laughs> and it's impossible to be both. Right. So, Cindy, tell us what it is that you are doing now. What are you working with? Um. So I work for a startup, um, for an image processing company, but um, I don't really work on any image processing software. Um, so like I said, I'm a fairly generalist software engineer, which means I do a whole bunch of different things, including um, API development, infrastructure development, um, and also a lot of operations because I work for a really small company. And um, what that means is that as a software engineer, I am expected to also be running all the services that I write. So um, that is that is pretty much what I do in a nutshell. And um, write about some of the things that I work on or some of the things that I learn about. Primarily, it's more for my own benefit than, you know, to actually write. Um, I really just started writing maybe a few months ago this year because for the longest time, I didn't believe that I had anything important to say or, you know, that I was even doing anything particularly interesting that, you know, other people might want to read about you know, but my opinions or my thoughts. So it really began with me starting to write more for my own understanding because, I mean, writing isn't something new. I have sort of like an extensive series of notebooks and just things that I've jotted down on the side, you know, over the years as I have been learning things. But um, it just wasn't something I ever thought was even worth making public because I just couldn't understand. I just couldn't really see who else would be interested in these things. But um, I kind of started writing, again, more for my own benefit. And um, I think with platforms like Medium, they just make it really, they just lower the bar to just sort of like publish it because, you know, you're just writing something for yourself, literally copy paste into something else and hit publish. And, you know, a whole bunch of people now can read it. So um, that's kind of how I really even started writing. Um, And I still don't really consider myself a blogger. Um, It's just writing about things that I learned or writing about things that, seem interesting to me. Currently, I'm going through what I call um, an operations phase. I mean, it's kind of weird because I really am not an operations engineer. Um, I do operations for the code that I write, but it is, I would say about 15, not more than 15% of my time is spent working on things like, you know, monitoring or deployments or any of the things that I actually write about. And um, yet that sort of is the thing that I have been writing about, mainly because um, that's what I don't know. Like building software is something, rather writing programs is something I've been doing for a long time now. But, um, you know, things like actually deploying my own code is surprisingly not something I have been doing for very long. So that's what I don't think I know very well. It also makes it, you know, which gives, gives me all the more of a reason to actually write about it. Because, you know, being able to just formalize my thoughts, being able to like put it all in one place and... Just being able to write helps me understand a lot of these things better. And, um, you know, that, that's what really got me into writing more than anything else. Now, do you think that's the reason why 
um, a lot of your posts and um, like Julia Evans posts and stuff like that, like resonate with people is because it's really this developer kind of transitioning into the operation space, which is what a lot of like the DevOps stuff is doing that, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're sharing your journey with people who are also trying to make the same leap and uh, learn more about operations that came from traditional kind of programming backgrounds. Um, I'd actually never thought about it that way. Um, I'm even completely, completely surprised that um, some of the posts that I've written have sort of gotten the attention that they have because it's 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 very very new to me. It's also very, very surprising because um, because like I said, a lot of those things were written more from my own understanding, and um, it's it's just very strange to me that something that I personally thought would only ever make sense to me is something that other people find interesting as well. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure why that happens or what it is that resonates. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to hear that, you know, it resonates with a lot of people, but um, I don't know. I mean, for me, for, for me, a lot of things is also about, um, I think this is, this is kind of, this is not something that, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this, but what I believe is happening right now is a lot of conversation especially about a lot of tools and a lot of new technologies that are emerging, a lot of the conversation is being monopolized by specific people or specific groups of people who present a very sort of tailored narrative or like a very tailored perspective. And what, what I feel is lacking is just a different, different story or just like a different perspective or just a different side of you know, the, same, the same story. Um, and I think probably, I mean, I'm guessing the reason why some people think that some of the things that I say make sense or has merit is because it just presents this alternative viewpoint that probably isn't being talked about a lot otherwise. And, um, you know, I think that's very true with, you know, let's, for instance, take the post that I wrote on schedulers. The main reason I wrote that was because it was meant to be an internal doc. It was never meant to be sort of like a public sort of um, blog post. I mean, I didn't start writing, start out writing that with that intention. Um, you know, we just introduced a scheduler and um, my service was the first one to be picked to sort of like, you know, be moved over to that paradigm of um, deploying applications. And um, one of the reasons why my service was picked was because it was like a fresh greenfield project that I was working on. So um, it sort of made sense to pick that because, you know, it's brand new. You know, if it failed, it's probably not the worst thing because it gave us a lot of time to test. We weren't really changing anything that's currently in production. So um, my service was the first that was picked, which also made, meant that, you know, I could no longer just be on the sidelines, just sort of like, you know, be hearing what people are saying about it. And, um, you know, just reading these blog posts and these tweets about, you know, about everything. But it really meant that I had to actually understand what what it was and why we are even doing this. And um, like I said, I work for a startup which means that not a lot of things are well-documented. And, you know, I didn't really have our SREs sit me down and sort of explain everything from, like, the beginning to the end, saying that, okay, this is how we are doing, this is how, well, this is why things are not working, this is what needs to change, and this is why we're using a scheduler. So um, a lot of the information in that blog post was um, just me trying to understand how things are even set up where I work and why things are set up that way and why we're even moving. Because I think understanding that, that that kernel was very, very important to sort of even understand why we need a scheduler. And then to sort of like even understand how things are gonna be changing. So um, it was, so the whole post sort of originated as me trying to, you know, just sit down and just understand all these different moving parts, you know, that no one had really documented or wasn't written down anywhere or properly explained. and to sort of demystify all of that once and for all, right? And then once that post was done, I was like, it was, it went, it, it was an internal talk. It went into a wiki. Then I was like, you know, there's actually nothing here that's super secretive or, you know, that cannot actually be shared with other people. So um, it, was, it, was, it was extremely long. It was ex embarrassingly long. And um, what I thought to myself was that, Jesus, this is just so long. I just can't possibly imagine who even would want to read it. But then I thought there were some interesting ideas there or rather i wanted to know if um 
what I was thinking even really made sense. I mean, it made sense internally to us, but um, a lot of times I think um, in software development, it becomes very easy to sort of validate your own viewpoint or your own biases because, you know, you talk to other people, in, in my case, it was my coworkers, who also all believe the same. So um, I thought it would make sense to sort of make it public because, you know, that way I could get other people's opinions and um, just see what, you know, maybe even if it was just one other person who read it to sort of, you know, maybe find out just what they think. And um, even see if some of our assumptions and, you know, the, some of the way in which we approach these problems actually sort of really made sense, right? So um, then I published it, and then it sort of took a life of its own, which is still extremely surprising to me. So, um, so that's, yeah, so that's how, how, how that came about. And um, the reason I believe those who liked it did so was, again, because it was just a different perspective. It was just a different voice. and. Um, it was more about actually solving problems as opposed to just using technology. And um, that is something that I think about a lot. And that is actually something that I spend most of my time doing, solving problems. And technology is just like a tool that I use to solve different problems. But at the end of the day, it's more about problem solving. And um, I think that a lot of tools, especially the sort of standard opinions and the standard narrative that you get about a lot of these technologies is about, you know, hey, here's this cool new tech. This is what it does. This is how it does it. This is how it's super cool. And, you know, this is why you should be using it. And and understandably, because, you know, every every single organization and every single person is going to have a different problem. And, um, you know, it's probably not going to be possible for someone who's creating a tool to go around saying, you know, this is going to solve all of these problems in all of these different ways. So at the end of the day, it becomes you know, the users of these tools, people like, you know, people like me, people like, you know, my coworkers, people like, you know, my company who actually use these tools to solve our problems, to um, sort of tell our side of the story, to explain how it really makes sense. And, you know, what are the challenges and what are the trade-offs and how things even fit together. So, um, yeah, so that, I think that's pretty much what I do. And um, if at all these things make any sense to other people, I'm guessing it's because, you know, these kind of um, from the trenches story, you know, aren't very widely told. That is a very good point. I love it. Uh, talking about the the actual problems and solutions that you are working with and using these tools to help solve is completely different than just talking about the tools in a vacuum. And I agree with you. I'm, I'm sure that that's the main reason why people are so drawn to your writing. I also wanted to say that your posts are extremely well-written. It's really rare to find uh, blog posts that are so well-written. And I think it's uh, not even to judge people's intelligence. I think people write posts in a hurry just because uh, they have something they want to put out there and everybody has a job. so. I don't know how much time you take to craft your post, but it looks like it's really well crafted and really well thought out. Plus, the the writing skills really show through. So, oh, thank you. Um, it really depends. So the post on clusters took um took a couple of weeks to write, mainly because um, like I said, it was just meant to be an internal post, and I was just understanding how these things even worked as I was sort of working with it. So um. And I wasn't even full-time working on schedulers. It was probably, like I said, I spent I spent probably 15% of my time doing operations work. So um, the vast majority of time um, during these weeks when I was sort of like writing that post, it was me just building this new service that, you know, we eventually ended up deploying with the scheduler. But, um, you know, that's what I was doing for the vast majority of the time. But, you know, there was this other 15 to 20% of the time where I was sort of learning these things because it was very new. And, you know, as I was learning, I was sort of writing things down. So um, that post took several weeks to write, actually. Um, because, I mean, because writing that post wasn't the only thing that I was doing. I was learning things. And as I was learning, you know, I used to just go jot down, you know, this one thing or this one thought that came to me or sort of, you know, this one idea. And, um, you know, at the end of it, you know, at the end of all of it, it became a blog post. Um, certain other posts that I've written probably being cracked out in a matter of hours. I would say that's the case for most of them. Um, especially that was the case for um, a post that I wrote on function length because I was having a Twitter conversation with um, Dave Cheney and Sam Boyer and um, a couple other folks. 
And um, I went back home that evening and I just started writing. That was written probably in about two hours. And uh, and I posted it. And um, I mean, it immediately made it to Hacker News. <laughs> I can understand what the reaction was like. Pretty much everyone calling me an idiot for writing that and for thinking that way. But um, it was fun. It was it was probably the most read post of mine. And it's also the most polarizing because got a whole bunch of people agreeing with me. But Jesus, a whole bunch of people also completely disagreed with me. So um, that was new. And that was fun. And that took like two hours to write. Maybe had I spent more time um, writing that post, it could have been more... Um, I certainly think it could have been a lot shorter. And that's true with all of my posts. Um, they're probably way too long. I mean, I'm I'm a professional software engineer. I'm not a writer. So this is part of what I do, you know, in my free time. And, um, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not writing professionally. So um, I don't really bother with things like, you know, editing and probably making it shorter, not repeating myself. It's kind of weird. It's kind of ironic that I don't, you know, I repeat myself a lot in my blog post and I also write a blog post about how repeating yourself is not a really bad thing. But um, yeah, I mean, most of them take a couple of hours to write. Um, the clusters one took much longer and probably, you know, a lot of these could use a shit ton of editing. I mean, I don't do much of that. You know, it's more like, you know, write something, post, you know, tweet, go to sleep, wake up next morning and just see what people are saying. And um, yeah. Yeah, well, that's very impressive. I'm impressed. Uh, I'm impressed both because you're saying, you know, you don't really pay attention to editing and yet to me, they, they come out really well written. Even the post you're saying you didn't spend more than two hours. And also because you're saying two hours and I'm thinking, you know, if I, what, I'm, I don't write blog posts. And if I, but I do, I feel like writing posts uh, every once in a while. And if I think it's going to take two hours, I'm like, oh my God, I don't have two hours. <laughs> it has to take five minutes. But of course you can't write anything in five minutes. So it, it doesn't get done because I don't want to allocate two hours to write a post. But it, it's a good reminder that these things take time. But it's also worth it because you get to have a conversation about it or you get to put your thoughts out there or you get to just write for your own benefit, like you were saying, for your own edification. And another thing that I wanted to say to you is that I personally love the the different takes that you have on things. I think it's welcome just for the sake of the opinion being different or contradictory, but you made me think in different ways from writing, from reading your posts. And I think it's, it's beneficial to me, definitely. I appreciate it, but I think it's beneficial for the tech community in general to get exposed to that. Even if they, at the end, they don't agree, mm -hmm. you know, I, herd mentality is horrible. We need to hear different voices, different opinions. Yeah, I think that's true though, right? Like, a lot of people follow the dogma, right? And I think we need people to challenge that sometimes and for us to at least question, you know, uh, it, it's like even a difference of opinion. Um, it, it can do one of two things. It may, um, it may make you more empathetic to why other people choose different tooling. Um, even though you may still believe that something is more superior, you may dismiss them as being completely wrong and you're right, it just makes you more set in your ways, you know, or, or it may bring you over to the other side, like you hadn't considered it that way. And there's a lot of stuff, like, especially as trends, you know, like say Kubernetes, right? Like I love Kubernetes, but you know, if you're, if you're running three, uh, digital ocean boxes or, or something like that, like, uh, it, it may be a bit of overkill. And if you're, you know, kind of, uh, in, in Cindy's example, like you're, you're working for a company that has a small enough team already and your developers are also the operations people like you're just at you added overhead in supporting the cluster you know time that you don't necessarily have yeah that's um that's very true and um you know that that brings me back to um my original point of actually solving problems because um you know that that's what i do and you know that's what most sort of professional software engineers are doing. They're solving business problems for their employers. 
using tools, um, some of which they may build and some of which they may sort of, you know, repurpose, some of which they may buy. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, it really boils down to solving problems. I think a lot of people sometimes tend to forget that because it's very easy. And I've, I've been guilty of this myself. It's very easy to just get swept over by, you know, by the hype or just how cool something is or just, you know, just how amazing a piece of technology is from a technical perspective and um, to sort of want to use that or sort of play with that. I think that's a perfectly sort of um, legitimate instinct. And, um, you know, I feel that all the time when, you know, I read about something that's super cool. I'm like, oh, that's just so amazing. I want to work with that. But I think it also becomes um, it becomes extremely important not to treat your employer as um, you know some sort of playground where you can just you know go and play with whatever tool you want, and um, you know especially when it comes to like tools like Kubernetes, which is both amazing and it's also incredibly complex, right? And um, at the end of the day, it's about making decisions as to you know is this complexity even warranted? What's it going to buy us? And what happens if we don't do this? What what really is the opportunity cost here? Are we willing to make this investment? And what are its biggest benefits? And you know, if even if we decide to do this, like how will it fit in with what we already have? And you know, just how how is all this going to work out? Because you know, I think I think that's less spoken about as opposed to you know what Kubernetes is and what it does and you know what it doesn't do. And it's most discussions. Around Kubernetes is just an example. Right? This is true about any technology, really. But oh yeah, and this isn't new, right? Like we're, we've been adopting. Thing. Yeah, we've been adopting. You know, mm-hmm. bleeding edge software for ages and putting it in production. Especially Brian and I, we are terrible about it. <laughs> Mostly me, though. I, I I usually just talk Eric into it. Remember my uh, addiction with the fact that we needed a GPU database, even if uh, even if we had to build one. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> and and these are like amazing things. And I think these, and I think, honestly, I think people should be sort of like going completely wild in their free time with, you know, whatever crazy technology, you know, they want to work with or they want to build or they want to play with. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, most of us, at least most of the people I know are working for employers and we are solving business problems. And, um, you know, it becomes extremely important to balance the sort of technologist instinct to, um, you know, adopt cool new things with, you know, balance the instinct to use new things and, um, you know, at the same time, really solve business problems, solve problems that the company is actually having and, um, you know, continuously build products that's going to make the company more money. And, um, you know, I, I think I've, I've most certainly been guilty of, um, prioritizing one thing over the other um and that's a lesson i've learned and um you know it it becomes really important to be cognizant of that um you know even when we find something super interesting or super cool i think it's easy to feel like you're being left behind right oh, yeah. like when it feels like the whole industry is going containers and kubernetes and you're like oh but we're still using ansible or puppet or something like that and um it's just you know, it's it's easy to feel that way. But at the end of the day, you know, if you're building quality software that's highly available, then, you know, you're doing your job. And uh, so I worked for a manager one time that had a cool rule. So for greenfield projects where you're building something new for the company, you you got a credit. You could pick one leading edge technology, but everything else had to be well proven already. <laughs> and I thought that that was a pretty good rule, right? Because you always end up down these rabbit holes where it's significantly more complex or you run into weird bugs that nobody's had before. There's just not a lot of content. There's not a lot of people to tap to help you when you run into weird things that nobody's ever seen before. You know, so, you know, building your whole stack on new technologies gets extremely difficult. That's true. And, um, you know, another downside to new technology is the operational burden of it. Um, you know, I'm a software engineer and, um, you know, it is one thing for me to say, I want to use this cool new language or this, you know, cool new framework. But, you know, when I'm also sort of wearing the ops hat, even if it's just for 15% of my time, 
you know, sort of actually working with it, actually being responsible for, you know, for what it does and operate, you know, when it's in production means that I kind of completely see the other side, the flip side to a lot of these um, newer unproven technology and that it's operationally incredibly difficult to reason about, especially it's incredibly difficult to reason about failure modes that, you know, aren't well advertised or, you know, well publicized, which again brings back, um, the importance of things like, you know, observability and monitoring and, you know, why it becomes important to, for, you know, observability or monitoring, not to really be an afterthought, but to sort of be a part of system design and, um, you know, to be something that, you know, one ideally proactively thinks about. And I think the good thing with old boring technology is that being able to proactively predict failure modes or being able to, um, you know, even understand how it needs to be um, instrumented or how it needs to be monitored is really easy as compared to something that's bleeding edge because, you know, all these blog posts about people explaining, you know, their actual, their um, story about how they use it isn't quite written as yet. All these things are like, you know, these are things that people have to figure out themselves. And um, my philosophy is that when I'm writing a new service or when I'm operating a service, the fewer things that I have to actually figure out for myself, the better. I mean, it's not going to be possible to, completely have everything you know figured out for you already right because you know in the, if that were the case none of us would have jobs but um it becomes really beneficial if you know the number of failure modes that you run into or the number of surprises that you know you could potentially have um are very less very good points so you had um started talking about the one post that was one of the most popular that hit uh, Hacker News and you kind of got some slack about, which was your your kind of short methods post. Oh, Did yeah. you want to kind of give a little bit of insight into that? Like what was what was the negative reaction to that? Was it kind of like overread into kind of they assumed you were taking a polarized view where it was like never a small method ever? It was more about people genuinely believing that a lot of the things that I said something that they agreed with. And um, that is totally fine. Um, it wasn't particularly negative than the fact that the vast majority of people, these are people who sort of commented were sort of like disagreeing with me, right? Um, there are a handful of sort of like pretty negative posts, but that's fine. Um, the vast majority, at least, of people who sort of disagreed were just disagreeing with the content. Um, um, some people complained that, you know, it lacked examples, but again, you know, I cranked it out in two hours. It wasn't like something I spent two days writing. So, um, you know, that probably explains why I didn't feel the need to um, inject a whole bunch of examples. And I also think in a lot of cases, examples can be very contrived. Um, it's kind of hard to sort of translate, you know, a real problem that one sees in a real code base that has been, you know, developed over several years by several different people with just several different styles and um, uh, a code base that's been built to um, you know, satisfy increasingly different and um, varying business requirements and constraints. Um, you know, an example can be, yeah, technically you can write an example, but it's just very, very hard to really capture what you're saying. Or like, at least in my case, it's like really capture the experience that I've had with, you know, like saying, hey, here's an example, like here's a function, right? You know, split it into two things and sort of makes sense. And, um, you know, that probably explains one of the reasons why there weren't too many examples. And a lot of people felt that, you know, a lot of the content of that post was very abstract. And um, and I understand that it can, you know, come across as abstract to someone who hasn't really felt the same pain. And um, yeah, that's also the flip side of, you know, writing posts in that, you know, it's probably not going to strike the same chord with a lot of people. But the good side is that it also had a lot of people writing to me and just saying how much they agreed with it. And um, that, that's pretty cool as well, because, you know, at least it's not just me feeling that way. So um, most of it wasn't particularly negative. It's just like a lot of people disagreed with me and that's fine. Um, you know, I wasn't really trying to be contrary for the sake of um, being contrary. It was more about, you know, something that I genuinely thought didn't make sense um, because I grew up learning, reading all these books. I grew up reading clean code and refactoring and book on design patterns by the gang of four. And um, for a long time, I'd sort of internalized all of that myself and, you know, I've written a lot of code, a lot of bad code, you know, that was just me trying to um, completely adopt these ideas and 
shoehorn whatever code that I was writing to adhere to these principles. And, um, you know, what I've learned is that doing that doesn't necessarily lead to better code. It doesn't even lead to um, better user experiences. And that's something that I, um, I'm very cognizant of these days is that, you know, the code we write is actually a user experience to another developer who's going to be also working on it, right? And taking some ideas that you might find in a book or a blog post and just blindly applying that to something that you're building could actually prove to end up providing a really bad user experience to other people. Because, you know, something that might seem very obvious to you, something that might seem very, you know, very simple might actually not be the case for like someone else, especially for someone completely new to the code base or even the technology or the tool. Because, you know, the way they think about it might be, you know, they might be missing a lot of context, a lot of, you know, the assumptions that went into um, some of the decisions you made. And I think um, making these things explicit is probably the most helpful thing that one can do to provide a good user experience to um, another person or make it at least very intuitive. And, um, you know, when it comes to code, I think the best way to make something intuitive is just to be explicit. And that is, I think, one of the most amazing features of Go is that, you know, what you see is what you get. There's like no magic. There is no, you know, sort of like hidden abstractions or like any talk of zero cost abstractions or any of this. It's just like dead simple, right? It's verbose. It's not everyone's cup of tea, but it is dead simple. It is what, you know, you look at it and can understand what it does. And, you know, that's amazing. And that's extremely valuable and extremely valuable for providing good user experiences to other developers. I couldn't agree more with what you said, everything, and especially what you said, the, the last that goal is very different and strives to make it, make everything explicit. I absolutely love that about Go too. And as far as your blog post on small functions, for me personally, I when I started programming, I was more struggling with knowing how to do it right. But I still struggle. It was just that I struggled a lot more <laughs> than learning how to do it uh, perfect. Uh, but I always kept reading books like Clean Code and uh, Pragmatic Programmer and Martin Fowler books and learning how to you know best practices and then i started when i started doing ruby i was at a point that i was more or less had a, enough experience with software development let's say but i was learning ruby as well and watched a bunch of conference talks online and read a lot of books and it was so much about uh, don't repeat yourself and write small functions refactor, refactor, refactor. So I came to go from that perspective. And then I noticed the files were so long and the functions were longer than I was used to, but it didn't faze me because I quickly saw it just worked. Everything's there. I'm loving this. I didn't question it. I didn't strive to apply the Ruby or Ruby on Rails uh, dogma, maybe even to go because I just took it as as it was. I didn't try to change what I was seeing. And when I read your post, uh, it resonated with me. And what caught my attention was that that the combination of having had experience of going doing go for long enough to feel comfortable with a different way of doing things, which which is to say longer functions, making things very explicit, repeating yourself. Like Dave says all the time, it's much better to repeat yourself than to just abstract things away, especially if you're doing it too soon. A lot of, I mean, I, I meant Dave Cheney, and a lot of people say that as well. Uh, so a combination of that, and also the fact that your post was so well-written, because if it, if it was a, blog post uh, writing about this, but the post had been written, you know, so-so, in a so-so way, I wouldn't give them much thought. But then your post is really well written and it really caught my attention. And I was thinking, this is abs this absolutely makes sense. It, it is not to say that it has to be that all the time, everywhere, every language, but it resonates with me and the work I do and works out much better this way. Thank you. One of the things that you mentioned, Cindy, that uh, resonated with me was 
was the idea of um, building examples that don't necessarily um, make sense just because it's hard to build examples. And that was something that, that always gave me the hardest time building training materials because you're trying to exercise a particular point or a topic and you don't want to build an entire application to, to prove that point. But sometimes uh, making those, those examples that, that teach a thing are really difficult. And, you know, students would always say, you know, what does this have to do with anything? Well, I'm trying to show you interfaces, but we can't really show you interfaces without building some sort of app. Right. I think, I think it's a lot easier for authors of books, though, because, you know, they can sort of start with one example and keep building on top of that. Um, it, that totally will not work for, like, you know, the blog post format because it's just super hard to sort of, unless one is, like, doing a series of posts where, you know, they sort of repurpose the same example. But, um, you know, if it's just one isolated thing, um, it's just super hard. I mean, I'm sure there are ways, but, you know, it's something that I find extremely hard to sort of um, capture, you know, without really making examples seem very contrived. Um, and I had a lot of people actually write to me saying that, um, oh, here's the simple, I mean, I actually tried doing that a little bit where I was like, you know, well, imagine if you have, you know, a function, which is all about creating a user in a database, right? Which is, I think that's like a super common example, like any any application or like any service you know, has that has um, that supports like you know users logging in has that feature, and um, you know, but that was sort of I did you know I sort of did that by halves because um, now I was like okay so let's think of this example where you have to create a user right so the point that I was trying to get across is that you know when you say small function should do one thing um, that one thing can be really hard to define right like creating a user can from a logical perspective it's one thing but actually involves several things. Like, you know, you create a user in the database and probably send them an email, you know, you write an event to like, um, you know, a message was like Kafka so that, you know, all the analytics tools can pick that up. Um, that was a really sort of contrived example to say that, you know, like doing one thing doesn't necessarily just mean doing one thing. It could mean several things. But um, a lot of people wrote me, wrote to me saying that, you know, of course, those things have to be separate functions. Like, why would you want to put all of that in one function? And whereas that really wasn't my point. It wasn't my point that, you know, those all have to be one big function. But the, the, the idea I was trying to convey there is that one logical thing maps to more than one sort of programmatic thing. And um, a lot of times these boundaries get very blurred because, um, you know, not everything that can be sort of programmatically isolated into potentially unit testable things um, necessarily should be. And, um, you know, when it actually does make sense to actually do that, which in my opinion is when you have um, network calls involved or, you know, you're writing to disk or something or you're just doing anything that's just not completely just very programmatic, right? So, um, I mean, if I could go back, I'd actually go back and edit that post a lot because, um, you know, I just kind of feel that a lot of things, a lot of ideas could be expressed both um, more concisely and more um, lucidly. But frankly, I don't think I'm going to be bothered. It's done. It's over. You know, probably write a different one. That's all. Yeah, in, I find myself actually doing uh, the opposite of uh, refactoring into small functions with my coding goal. Like sometimes I see small functions that I just wipe out and put the code back into inside the function, or I refactor things out and then I change my mind and put it back in. <laughs> Uh, I find myself doing that a lot more than refactoring things down to tiny functions. I think I think the one thing people underestimate is, you know, just how hard it can be when you technically just have to move around, even when you're reading code. It's, I mean, I had one of my coworkers who um, sort of started writing a Go project, uh, started working on a Go project, and he started, um, you know, thinking about what packages should be, what the API should look like. And he gave, probably gave way too much thought to that way too soon. Um, two weeks into the project, he told me that, you know, I've actually given up. I've put everything in a package called main and everything and actually a function called main because he was like, I was so fed up with just making all these decisions. I just wanted to get this thing working. So it's now one package main. It really was just one file and it was just one function called main. And he kind of got that working. And then he, then he went back and sort of refactored things a little bit. Or maybe he didn't. I don't know. I should ask him if it's like still just one big main function. But I definitely remember him sort of trying to decide on what the API should look like, what the package boundary should look like. Um, 
you know, the first thing that he did when he started this project was do that. And then a couple of weeks later, he was like, you know, Jesus, I think I've complicated this way too much. I'm just going to put everything in one main function and get it actually working. So um, I think I think it's a lot easier to abstract later in the process than to do sort of do it up front. Um, you know, in this case, it's just a really extreme example of someone just writing their whole application, you know, in one function, especially the function main. But um, I have definitely seen a lot of projects that actually have just one package called main, where um, a lot of things that could have been smaller packages, you know, were just all sort of like put in one main thing, um, one main package. Um, at the end of the day, I think it comes down to how um, how easy or not something is to maintain and how easy or not something is for someone new to the code base to understand. And, you know, optimizing for these two things, I think, should be the goal, which could a lot of times mean sort of going against the grain or doing things that may not seem very intuitive to um, purists. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about trade-offs. And, um, you know, there's there's never, and I think this is this is the point I was really trying to get across in, the, in that blog post was that it really is never about perfection because, you know, what seems perfect today could just be completely invalidated tomorrow when you have a bug report or a new requirement. and as such, if the goal is to just build something that is good enough, you know, that can be extended and that can be modified, you know, without requiring a lot of cognitive overhead or even without requiring, you know, a fully fledged refactor, sort of make it good enough and not perfect, you know, probably makes a lot of sense to me because, you know, that helps in maintaining, in writing maintainable code. And it also helps in, you know, writing code that's not it's it's not perfect, which means that you know a lot of people are going to you know look at that code and say you know hey I could these these the all these things could be done in such a different way and it could be so much better, and the thing is it could be a lot better, you know, for a very short period of time, right? And I think that is what a lot of people fail to understand is that perfection is sort of short lived, especially in software development. You can achieve it, but it really is going to be short lived, versus, you know being good enough, which can actually get you a very, very long way. And, you know, especially for those of us writing stuff, you know, writing software and writing services that, you know, have or that are designed to have some amount of longevity. And um, I think it makes sense to sort of like, you know, most successful projects are projects that sort of evolve and live on, right? It's not like something that you're just going to put in production, then like, you know, two weeks later, just get rid of. And for a lot of these extremely long running and potentially any project that one wishes you know to be successful the goal there should be to just make it good enough not really perfect because you know perfection is again like i said short-lived yeah i, I agree with ev absolutely every single thing you said and it's it in the end it's, it is about trade-offs and it really sucks when you start making the trade-offs too soon uh for example like you're saying you know the like you the example you cited of your friend or coworker putting everything in the main package. It's hard to say that there is only one right way to do things, but for me, that is absolutely the right way to do it. Do it like that and then think about how splitting things up later, because you're going to, depending on what it is that the end product ends up being, you're going to use different decisions to, to work that out. Um, because otherwise you're making, at least that's how it happens to me. If I, try to make those decisions up front. I go through the painful, painful process of making that decision and figuring it out. And then at the end, I see that I didn't make the right call. It's really hard to make the right call up front before you have the finished product or so, sort of what the finished product should be. And then I have to make the same decision, go through the same decision process again. So the more I work, the more I aim for the things that you were saying, like readability and easy to understand code versus optimize, optimizing for other things. And even when I start writing a function and I don't know what the function exactly is going to be or the scope of that function is going to be once it's done, I just type like ASDF as the name of the function. I just Whatever I type on the keyboard, put a parenthesis in the brackets and then I'll write the function. And then I'll name it after it's done. I don't try to Otherwise, I spend so much time trying to like, what is the shortest 
best name for this function, and I haven't even written the function yet. I don't want, sort of know what it's going to do, but I, you know, once I'm done, it might be a bit different than what I was thinking. I might split things up. So what's the point of going through that decision-making process up front? It's, it's a waste of time and effort. Anyway, I think we should move on to project news. I think we should. I think we've got uh, five or six minutes left of the show. So interesting projects and news. And we've been gone for about two weeks. So uh, mm -hmm. probably the first out is Go19 is out of RC. Uh, so it is officially released. Um, please Yay. download it. Yay. <laughs> Go get some. And Eric has a new job. I think that's probably the more exciting news in any of this. Why don't you tell us about that, Eric? Yeah, I do have right? a new job. So I announced last week we didn't have a show, but I am joining Brian and everybody on Microsoft <laughs> Azure. It's almost Brian literally and, everybody. Brian and everybody. <laughs> we got to get Carlicia and then it'll be the whole show. <laughs> I know. Oh, I also have an announcement. <laughs> I don't have a new job. <laughs> That's, <my announcement. laughs> That's awesome. And for the record, I'm very happy where I am. So Microsoft hasn't asked, but if Microsoft asks, you, you don't even need to ask. I'm really happy where I am, not looking to move. I was really happy where I was too, but the opportunity to work on Kubernetes and Docker and all of that stuff, all of the things that I love to do in my spare time during my business hours is uh, really awesome. Yeah, that's incredible for you guys. So what else we got? Uh, community outreach uh, working group. That Yay. was a couple of days ago. Yeah. And we don't even know how to pronounce it. So there was a blog called Kauji. Who knows? <laughs> but, but we have a, a community outreach working group. And our goal is obviously to uh, spread the love of Go throughout lots of communities, but more importantly, help people. Um, help people help others learn Go. And you can read about that at blog.golang.org. And there's lots of us members. And uh, feel free to jump in too, Cindy, if you, you can think of anything that's come out in the past week or so that uh, everybody should know about. So I actually read a really good blog post yesterday. Um, it wasn't, it, it doesn't really pertain to Go so much, but um, it really is about, um, how to optimize services for both um, low latency and high throughput. Um, I saw it on the um, blog of Dropbox, and um, it was very dense, and um, it was extremely interesting. Just tweeted that link out, too. Yes. Very good blog post. My favorite kind. I think I saw you tweet that out, Brian. I haven't got a chance to, uh, to read it yet. And on a similar note, um, uh, Samsara... They do like a IoT device for cars. Um, they've got a blog post and we'll link it in the show notes. Um, but they're running Go on low memory devices, like 170 megabits, megabytes, uh, something along those lines um, of, of memory for this kind of uh, in-vehicle device that does some camera stuff and, and telemetry that it reports back. So I thought that was cool. I, um, if you read through, basically, they, they end up kind of tweaking the garbage collector, but it's an interesting read. Um, if you like low-level stuff, um, davidwong.fr slash goasm uh, is like a really cool kind of walkthrough of like um, some example Go code and how it translates to um, Go's internal kind of assembly language that it uses. So if you like to kind of learn about that stuff, that's really interesting. Yeah, you can keep the assembly code. That's all you, buddy. <laughs> I, don't, I, li I like that stuff. I mean, I don't want to sit here and write applications in assembly, but you know, I, I like being able to troubleshoot stuff and look through the actual assembly language that gets generated. Got one more uh, news item. There's a good blog post at uh, blog.minio.io about a new standard for data at rest encryption. Uh, the blog post summarized said basically that uh, you know we we do lots about uh, encryption in transit but there's no standard for encryption at rest so they they propose a standard and a go implementation of that standard sounds really interesting and i liked their reasoning for the whole thing and they in, intend to use that uh, uh, 
uh, dare, <laughs> which if you're an 80s kid like me, just makes me laugh. But they intend to use dare for their uh, client and server versions of Minio. That is fantastic. And that may actually, I was thinking about mentioning a blog post, but it might not have anything to do, to do with Go. The Signal use Go, Signal app. I seem to recall that they do. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know. But real quick, uh, Signal, the, the messaging app, mm -hmm. they they have um, a blog post explaining the encrypted profiles that they have now in public beta. And I haven't finished reading the whole thing, but it's just the things that you don't even think about that should be encrypted or could be encrypted and how they've been so careful about really you know, providing privacy for people who are using messaging, uh, encrypting images. This stuff is so important. People don't realize it. So there. Good stuff. And, and real quick too, I wanted to go back to the working group uh, news announcements and just mention that it's for everybody. Any People frequently ask how they can get involved in the community. This is perfect because they have a list of issues. First of all, you can open a new issue. Anybody can do that. It's obviously, it's open source it's for the community. But they already have a list of issues that you can comment on. You can volunteer to help out or take the lead. It's fantastic. And a bunch of different things, all kinds of things that need to be done. There's something for everybody. Nice. How about uh, Free Software Friday? Cindy, this is a segment of the show where we like to give a shout out to a open source project or maintainer or group or pretty much anybody that's doing open source uh, that we happen to appreciate. And it doesn't even have to be Go related. My free software Friday shout out this week is to Minio because I love them a lot. And they're doing awesome stuff in uh, S3 compatible file storage and releasing good tools just all around the board, they're great corporate citizens, and they're kind of awesome. Yeah, Minio is um, a super, super cool company. Um, I really want to thank um, Fabian. I don't know if you guys know him. Um, Fabian Reinhardt, I think. He um, He's a Prometheus core maintainer, and um, that dude single-handedly rewrote all of, I mean, the entire Prometheus storage engine for Prometheus 2.0. Like, it was just one guy doing all of that. And um, I don't know if you've, if you've been following um, some of the blog posts and some of the, um, the new performance improvements, um, you know, especially in the storage engine of Prometheus um, that's coming up in the new 2.0 release. But um, it, it's just super cool. And um, yeah, so really, I want to thank Fabian for that. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, sounds like beast mode. Right. <laughs> How about you, Carlicia? I don't have a thing. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I know it's free software Friday, but I'm gonna break that due uh -oh. to kind of everything that's been going on. Um, so with with everything going on in Houston, like the whole um, have you guys heard the the whole Cajun Army thing? Yes. No. Like, yeah. So yeah. So there is a group of people, uh, kind of across the country, that um, after Katrina and stuff, kind of put themselves together, volunteers. They call themselves the Cajun Army, and like when Houston hit. Like they were driving from everywhere, bringing boats and everything like that. They had radios going back and forth. People, you know, some people were out in boats and trucks. Um, some people were at home just playing dispatch, um, uh, basically working with the people who were stuck in their houses and, and giving them advice and prioritizing calls and dispatching them out to to volunteer rescuers on boats and stuff like that. So. You know, it's not software, but I think that they deserve a huge shout out. Everybody who participated in any manner for that, because seeing people help people is just awesome. Yeah, right on. And they're 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 acting like the uh, uh, I don't want to use the word unprofessional, but un, un, unauthorized National Guard. You know, they're just stepping in where they need to to help. And it's been amazing watching what they're doing. Unofficial, not unauthorized. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, one uh one sounds criminal. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't. It's like way to go. I just hyped him up, Brian, and then you called yeah. them criminals. They're criminals. It's fake news. <laughs> I guess um uh, is it okay to like I guess thank another 
project, would it be fine? Yeah. yeah. Sure. Cool. Um, you know, the other project that I have been that has that that sort of came out about a year ago and um that I think has gotten a lot of traction since has been Envoy. Um I think Lyft open sourced it and um it's in the service mesh category. So um everything that has to do with microservices and um you know service oriented architectures and um you know why a service a service mesh necessarily makes sense there. And um what's been interesting in the recent few days or rather the recent few weeks is that um the first thing first i think envoy has um i don't think it is a part of the cloud native computing foundation as yet but i believe they are voting on that and um so i think that would be super cool and um more importantly um i have seen discussions about potentially building it into kubernetes itself so you know it becomes the official um sort of mesh for um you know all kubernetes applications and um i think i think the main person behind uh, or the main person driving envoy development is um matt klein at lyft and um i think he was primarily responsible for open sourcing it and for shepherding it ever since and um so having so i think i think he's just been doing some great work on this and um more importantly um it kind of makes sense, and it's also really interesting about you know potentially building Envoy into Kubernetes, is because I think Envoy is very very similar to an internal Google um, system that they have. I don't know I don't know if it has an official name, but talking to a couple of Google engineers, what I heard is that like pretty much every Google service you know has Sidecar proxy, you know which does pretty much everything that Envoy does. So um you know as we know Kubernetes itself is based on um, the Borg scheduler. That was developed at Google, and um, what I what I'm finding incredibly interesting is that a lot of the um, auxiliary tooling and um, you know the, a lot of the um, surrounding infrastructure is now um, being available for everyone to use, and um, you know that is that is actually pretty awesome, and it's also pretty awesome that you know there's some great um, people who are very committed to um, you know bringing these pretty advanced tools, you know, to the rest of us. I think Prometheus as well is an example of, um, you know, a tool that is built based on an internal Google tool, you know, but then which fits in really well with the whole Kubernetes ecosystem because, you know, it all just sort of plays really well with one another. And um, I think Envoy is another such tool. So, um, you know, I think it's going to be really interesting to see, um, you know, some of the developments in the infrastructure space in the, you know, in the next few years because with sort of Kubernetes, you know, rapidly approaching, you know, to being the standard way, you know, in which people are going to deploy applications in the future. Um, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, just how other supporting tools are going to be, um, you know, built in. And more importantly, at least for me, it's about, you know, how easy these tools or like how seamless these tools are going to be to adopt and, um, you know, to gain the most benefits from. And I want to point out that Cindy has a blog post talking about Envoy and comparing it to AJ Proxy and NGX. It's a pretty cool post. Yeah, I've been following Envoy for a few months. Um, and yeah, I, I I haven't got to play with it yet. And I've been itching too. And I'm I'm hoping soon. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it looks ridiculously cool. And it's like um, wire compatible with, let's say, Mongo, a couple of databases, gRPC, it supports natively, and some things like that. It's it's ridiculously cool. Yeah, it's um, MongoDB and Dynamo, and I believe there is um, they're adding Redis support as well. Um, I think primarily as of now, um, I, I think Google now have commit access to the um, to the repo, so um, it's just not you know Lyft effort. I think they're at Google. They have like a dedicated team working just on Envoy. Which is incredible that you know you can actually have this project and get like a company like Google devote some of their engineers to actually you know help improve your product. Um, but currently it's um, just MongoDB, DynamoDB, and I think Redis support is being added. Though um, you know I can imagine why support for things like you know the MySQL wire protocol or the Kafka protocol would be just incredibly cool, and um, you know it's just going to help you know increase adoption. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how that how that comes along, especially if it becomes a CNCF project. Right. All right. So I think we are a little over time, but uh, we're good. What's new? So 
<laughs> we're we're always over time. So didn't we start this out at like 20 minutes? Wasn't that going to be the original goal when we started this podcast? It was. It was going to be a short <laughs> <Yes>. little podcast. <laughs> That's okay. It's perfect the way it is, I think. Now we're at an hour and I don't even think we keep that. <laughs> so with that, uh, thanks everybody. Uh, especially thank you, Cindy, for coming on and, and talking with us. Uh, I wish we had more time, uh, but we got, we got to stop the show somewhere. A uh, huge thank you to all of the listeners. Uh, definitely share the show with uh, friends and coworkers. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at GoTimeFM. Um, if you want to be on the show, have suggestions for guests or topics, uh, find us on github.com slash gotimefm slash ping. And with that, uh, bye, everybody. We'll see you next week. Although I won't see everybody next week. I'll be gone for two weeks. But everybody else will see you next week. Somebody will see somebody next week. This show, this show is great. <laughs> somebody will be here. We promise. We'll have our people call your people. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be here. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. All right. That's it for this episode of Go Time. Tune in live on Thursdays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community in Slack with us. In real time during the shows, head to changelog.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTimeFM. Special thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. Also, Linode, we host everything we do on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. GoTime is edited by Jonathan Youngblood, and the theme music for GoTime is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>